Hello. I hope you have been enjoying this series through the book of 1 Kings. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 5 to 7, and it's all about a new era of worship beginning because Solomon builds a temple, and then the temple becomes the center of worship in Israel and Judah. At the end of chapter 4, we read these interesting words. It's really a summary of, of life at the beginning of Solomon's reign. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. That's a lovely little description of how life ought to be. Each family in the nation living in safety, enjoying prosperity, private ownership, and enjoying times of rest and relaxation. It's a lovely picture. Each person living in, with their place in the sun, as it were. And after the reign of King David, this is how life begins for the citizens under King Solomon. They were at peace and able to enjoy their lives. And we know this is what God desires for us too. Hence the prayer of 1 Timothy 2. We're to pray for our leaders so that we too may live peaceful and quiet lives. We're also reminded here in chapter 4, before we get into chapters 5 and 6, that God gave Solomon an amazing amount of wisdom. And as was pointed out last week, this wisdom meant that he had an attentive heart, an inquiring mind, a listening spirit. But this, this term of wisdom that Solomon had, it also reply, applied to the knowledge that Solomon gained. We see in verse 29 of chapter 4 that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding. It describes the proverbs that he, in, that he created and also his systematization of knowledge about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. So here in the Bible, Solomon's wisdom and knowledge and understanding also extends to botany and zoology and to the arts. But the two chapters we're going to study today deal with the, the building of the temple, the preparations for the temple to be built. And this is important because the temple became the center of worship, of Jewish life as it were. It was in the temple that the Shekinah glory of God was manifested between the wings of the cherubim in the most holy place, in the holy of holies. King David, the previous king, had wanted to build a temple for the Lord who he loved so much, but God had not given him the go-ahead to do that. So what David did instead of building the temple was make preparations and to pass on the vision of building a temple to his son Solomon. But let's begin to read from chapter 5. And in verse 1, we find a communication uh, between Solomon and a king down the road, Hiram, the king of Tyre. 
And when Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent an envoys to Solomon because he'd always been on friendly terms. And Solomon sends back this message. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God. But now, verse 4, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. So this is an interesting communique between Solomon and King Hiram. And he says things are going well for me. We're in a good season. There's, there's no opposition. There are no disasters. And so the time is right for us to build a great temple for our God. And Hiram is very cooperative and uh, sends word back hey, I'm happy to help. I will organize wood and uh, all of the resources that I can lay my hands on. I'm happy to, to give those to you. It's also worth noticing that under David, there were certain things that couldn't be done. But yet now that there's a time of peace, the temple can be built. And so it is with with our lives and, and ministry and the global church. Sometimes there are seasons when we can get less done, when there are disasters and, uh, and, and other things going on. And, and David is, Solomon rather, is able to say, we're at a time of peace now and we can surge forward with the work of the Lord. We know from the book of Chronicles that it had been David's desire to build a temple for the Lord. In 1 Chronicles and chapter 22, we read that David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord. But this word came to me. You've shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. So this is the reason that is spelt out to David by the Lord as to why he cannot build God a temple. He had sinned too much. There was blood on his hands. I think of how he killed Bathsheba's husband. And, and perhaps there were other wars where David had shed innocent blood. But the word of the Lord goes on, verse 9. But David, you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest. And he is the one, verse 10, who will build a house for my name. So David did what he could do. He, he took great pains, we see, to provide for the temple of the Lord. And then he commissions his son, now begin the work and the Lord be with you. Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not granted you rest? For he has handed the inhabitants of the land over and the land is subject to the Lord and his people. 
This is David passing on the vision to his son Solomon. You can read some of the verses because I've left out a few in the interests of time. Back to 1 Kings chapter 5, we read in verse 7, When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over the nation. And then in verse 8, he assures David that he will provide all the cedar and pine and even labor to help with the transportation of these goods. Let's jump now to verse 13, where we begin to cover some ground that I believe is very significant. Take a look with me at, at verse 13 of 1 Kings 5. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all of Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. There's something very significant going on here. Do you notice these words, conscripted laborers? There's a description of shift work, one month on, two months off. This is migrant labor with the people of Israel having to go to Lebanon to, to serve on these projects. There's even a person here in charge of forced labor. And one has to wonder, was this really God's way of building the temple? Forced labor, conscription, tearing men away from their families and their loved ones to go and work in a faraway place? Was this God's way to have the temple built? And by the way, it took seven years to build the temple. And 13 years for Solomon to build his own palace. Verses 15 onwards give, give something of the scale of this project. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project. This is a huge building project, building this temple, building the palaces for Solomon and his wives. Three and a half thousand supervisors, 70,000 people to help carry this big stones back. 80,000 people to be involved in cutting stones. This is a, a truly massive project involving great numbers of people. I want you to think back to that verse I, I read at first from chapter 4 about before all of this building began, people were enjoying life. They were quietly at home, each person living under their fig tree and their vine. How things have changed. Perhaps they look back on those early days of Solomon's reign as the good old days. Now there's conscription. 
There's forced labor. Think of the disruption to to family life, to education. The Lord may have given Solomon great wisdom, but that doesn't mean to say everything he did was good. Up until this time, the worship of Yahweh had been a simple matter, a matter of the heart. People in their backyards pulling rocks together, creating altars and offering sacrifices to the Lord. Worship was a a simple matter. The law also stated that none of the stones used for building these altars for private worship were to be cut in any way. There was to be no chance of, of idol worship slipping into the worship of Yahweh under the guise of uh, pretty artwork or something like that. The worship of the Lord was to be kept simple. It wasn't to be mixed up with idolatry and the like. For hundreds of years up until this point, the the Ark of the Covenant had moved around in the tabernacle. Here is a, a picture of what the tabernacle may have looked like. It was a simple tent, and this was where Moses and Joshua And many people encountered God. This was the tent of meeting. This was the place where God's presence was. But now Solomon wants to build a a more impressive structure for his God. A temple that is actually going to be covered in gold. I'm sure the vision was good and God deserves the best. But what of the human cost here? It reminds me a little of the building of cathedrals in Europe in the Middle Ages. How economies were ruined and how peoples were impoverished through having to give of themselves and give of their taxes for the building of these great cathedrals that we may admire today. These were massive projects that drained people. And when I think of Solomon's temple and and all that it involved, the conscription and the like, I, I think to myself, was this really what God desired? We know there was a lot of human pride in much of what Solomon did. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes where he talks about his great building projects. And he says that much of it was just vanity. Sometimes it is easy for our personal vision, for what we want, to get mixed up into what we believe God wants. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here with Solomon building a gold-plated temple for the Lord. We know later God would say through Isaiah, and this is Isaiah chapter 111, a hard-hitting scripture where God reminds the people that sometimes what they think is worship, uh, it doesn't impress God at all. Listen to these words from Isaiah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? 
I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. These are God's words to people who think they're worshipping him. God says it means nothing to me. I wish you'd, you'd stop. Who's asked this of you? I also think of Malachi 1 where God says through the prophet, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord. God is not impressed with gold-plated buildings. The kind of worship that blesses the heart of God is worship from a, a heart of integrity and purity. Who may approach the, the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is the kind of worship that God seeks. Not majestic buildings. Maybe that's why Jesus cries in the New Testament when he looks at the buildings and says, you know what, all of this is going to be destroyed. May God keep us from the common error of pursuing a vision, a building project perhaps that is not of him. By the way, to, to change the subject here, do you know that it was never actually God's will that Israel be ruled by kings? It wasn't God's will that Israel would become a monarchy. It was always God's desire that he would be their king. As we can see, under Solomon's rule, the people are suffering. They're being heavily taxed. They're, they're being forced into offering labor one month out of every three. The prophets had over time warned what would happen if Israel established a monarchy. It's a fascinating account. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. How sad to see that corruption dates back a very long way. And not all was well here among the people of God. And so the elders come to Samuel and say, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint a king to lead us. 
such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Samuel intuitively knows that what the Israelites are asking for is not good. Moses wasn't a king, but he was the greatest leader Israel ever had. Joshua wasn't a king, but he led an amazing military campaign. The judges were not kings, but some of the time they led Israel really well. But now the people are wanting a change in the way they are governed, in the way they are led. And their cries, give us a king to lead us. And Samuel does what any good leader would do. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. When they say, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They have rejected me as their king. The Lord says to Samuel, you're right. This desire to have a king is really a rejection of God's leadership over his people. And God says to Samuel, let them have a king. It's not what's best for them, but they desire a king. Give them a king. But I want you to warn them what that's going to be like. It's amazing to me that sometimes God does give people what they ask for, even when it's not his will. And we see that going on right here. God tells Samuel to warn the people. Verse 9. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel tells the people what the king will do. Verse 11, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands. Others to plow his ground, reap his harvest. And others to make weapons of war and equipment. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take your best land and give them to his friends. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and confidence. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. Be warned, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you on that day. Verse 17 is mind-blowing. This is Samuel warning the people who want to have a king. 
He says, it's going to go badly. You will become his slaves. And in these chapters, chapters 5 to 7 of 1 Kings, we see that happening. Forced labor, conscription. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Samuel was one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever known. But they disregard his warnings. Verse 20 sheds a little bit more light on what's motivating this desire for a king. We want a king over us. Verse 20, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. We want to be like the other nations. What a terrible statement for God's people to make. We want to be like the other nations. There was a time when God led his people into battle. The the power and presence of the Lord went before God's people. Now they're wanting a human king to lead them. This is a failure to grasp and understand who they are, that they are different, that they are not like the other peoples and nations. They're wanting to bring into the community of God's people, a worldly leadership model. They're wanting a CEO, a figurehead to lead them and guide them when God's heart was that he would fulfill that role and be their king. Reminds me too of the Israelite people who at the the trial of Jesus shouted out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Had they not read the the Psalms of late, where God declares himself as Israel's king? As God's people, we should have a very flat leadership structure. And in our church, we do. We practice the priesthood of all believers. And this is the way it should be. Jesus says in Matthew 23, you're not to be called rabbi. You only have one master. You are all brothers and and sisters. Don't call anyone on earth father. Don't have fancy titles for people in the church. For you have one father. Nor are you to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, the Christ. You are all equal, says Jesus. We are to be led by the Spirit with with Jesus as as our king, as, as our leader. Israel's desire to look to a human figurehead for leadership was not of God. The people wanted a king, a rallying point. They refuse to listen to Samuel. Then we will be like the other nations, they said. The bottom line is this was a rejection of God's leadership 
over the kingdom of Israel and an importing of a worldly model for, for Israel, which actually didn't work out very well for them at all. But God says they want a king, give them a king. Let's make sure that we're being led by the Lord and not bringing into the church a worldly way of doing things, conducting God's business. Let's go back to 1 Kings. And my sense, as I shared earlier, is that some of this building work was undertaken for Solomon's glory and not just God's. These were prestige projects, if you were, and projects to keep his many wives happy. At the end of chapter 6, we read that he spent seven years building the temple, but 13 years to complete the construction of his own palace. But it gets worse. In 1 Kings 11, we read that as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. In verse 7, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. We now come to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is really a description for us of the temple that was going to be built. Verse 2, the temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. A cubit is a measure from the elbow to the end of the fingertips. That distance there is a cubit. And it works out this temple size to being 27 meters long, 9 meters wide, and 14 meters high. This was the size of the temple that Solomon built. There's an interesting comment in verse 7 that no hammer or chisel or any tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Isn't that an amazing thing they did to, to honor God? They, they didn't want to cut the stone at the temple site to disturb the, the serenity of the, the building site. If any of you have ever been involved in building, you will know what a blessing this is that they're talking about. Here's a, a picture of what the temple may have looked like. Here's a, a diagram. This is Solomon's temple. In the next slide here, you can see it cut open and what it might have looked like inside. In our third slide, there's a, a zooming in. And in our fourth slide here, you can actually see the, the Holy of Holies in the far left. So there was a, a three-roomed structure, as it were. Well, the, not a room, the outer court, then the inner uh, holy place, and then the most holy place 
behind that tall curtain where the golden cherubim were and the ark of God and God's presence, his Shekinah glory was, was manifested there between the wings of the cherubim. I want to spend a few minutes now on the, the, the geography of the Temple Mount. This is really, in all likelihood, the most contested real estate in, in all of the world today, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's a place that holds so much significance for, for Muslims, for Christians, and for Jews. It is the holiest site in Judaism, particularly the Wailing Wall down to the bottom left of what you see in the picture, because the Wailing Wall is perhaps closest to where the Holy of Holies was. When I last visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, I remember hearing a little bit of a disruption and an argument breaking out between some Jewish pilgrims and the police operating on the Temple Mount, and they didn't want the Jews to walk anywhere on the Temple Mount. And this is because they're scared that they could accidentally walk over the most holy place. So people of other faiths are allowed on the Temple Mount, but at that point, a few years ago, they, they didn't want Jews to, to walk on the Temple Mount, which is an interesting situation, and I think in, a, in recent weeks is beginning to change. But for Muslims, this is the, the third most holy site in Islam. Uh, that golden dome covers a rock. There is a rock under that dome in what is known as the Dome of the Rock. And that is the rock that uh, Muhammad went on his night journey from in Islam, which happened in, in 621. But, and then in the bottom left of the corner, we have the Al-Asqa Mosque which is uh, used regularly by Muslims. So this is a very contested place of, of real estate. And I want to just point back to its, its origin. And it started off as a, a humble threshing floor. This was just farmland at the time King David arrived on the scene. And you can read the story in 2 Samuel verse 24. 2 Samuel Verse 24, but God was sending a plague to punish the people uh, because David was trusting in men when he took a census of his fighting men. and That displeased the Lord. And um, David is praying and praying and saying, Lord, please don't punish other people for the sins that I have committed in taking the census. And uh, the Lord sends a plague and eventually the plague stops. Um, at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And that's in verse 16. And uh, at that point, David says, right, this is a great place for me to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And he says to Aruna, let me buy this land from you, your, your threshing floor. People used to thresh wheat up on a hill because there'd be more wind up there. And uh, David says, this is going to be a good place for me to worship God. I want to buy this land of you. Aruna says, no, you're the king. I'm just going to give you the land. And David says these, these famous words. No, I'm not going to 
offer a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. And so we read in verse 24 that David bought the threshing floor and used the oxen that were up there and and the wood that was there uh, for his sacrifice. And so this temple mount is land that David, King David, bought. And Solomon's development of the land was the first person to to build a, a great structure on that land. And I believe it shows that this land has a long history of belonging to the Jewish people. But there's even more history to this land. In 2 Chronicles 3, we We read these words, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. This is Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And of course, it's also on Mount Moriah, where Abraham's faith is tested. And where he demonstrates his absolute devotion to God by offering up his son Isaac on the altar. So that's a little bit of the history of the Temple Mount. Who owns the land? How it came to be significant to Jews? It was the place of Abraham's sacrifice. It was the place where the plague stopped and David offered sacrifices and bought the land. And it was the place where Solomon in in the 900s BC built a great temple for the Lord. So in summary then, as I wrap up, what can we learn from these chapters? Number one, I think David really wanted to build the temple for the Lord. But his disobedience to God had some real consequences. His adultery, his shedding of innocent blood, disqualified him from being able to build the temple of the Lord. And how true this is, that our sins and weaknesses and failings can prevent the work of the Lord progressing in our own lives. And I wonder how many people fail to achieve all that God has for them because of their disobedience, our disobedience and our sin. The second thing I learned from this passage is that wise people make mistakes. Solomon was the wisest man on the the face of the earth. But yet he made some horrendous moral choices. I think his, his use of conscripted and forced labor was, was not the right choice. I think some of his ego got, got wound up in the prestige projects that he was engaged in. Even the temple he builds for the Lord, was it a reflection of him or was it just for God? Did God really require all that labor and effort and gold plating? Thirdly, we see that Israel's desire to have a king contradicted God's will for them. God wanted to be their king. Their desire to to have a king come and lead them was, was a worldly desire. 
God wants his people to be governed a different way. He wants us to be a community of equals, a family governed together and led by the Spirit in unity. We shouldn't ever be looking to a man to lead us. Whatever his title, Pope, Bishop, Prophet, Apostle, God wants to be our leader. Jesus said, call no one rabbi, teacher, father, for you are all equals. I see in this passage the outworking of what happened to God's people when they got for themselves a king that wasn't God's will. The the whole history of Israel was was a checkered one. And after Solomon, the kingdom split. And soon there were wars between the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Having a king, having kings did not work out well for Israel. Fourthly, we see that sometimes God gives us what we ask for, even when it's contrary to his will. 1 Samuel 8.17, you will become his slaves, but give them a king. Give them a king, it's what they want. And they exchange living peacefully, each person under their fig tree and vine, for a, a highly taxed and difficult way of life. And today we've learned about the Temple Mount, This amazing piece of real estate that in many ways has the world's attention on it like no other place. The sacred mountain. In all likelihood, the place where Abraham offered up Isaac, where David offered sacrifice, and of course where Solomon built the first temple and King Herod the second. Next week, we, I'm going to be leading us through uh, the next couple of chapters of this book following on from today. And we're going to be looking at the temple, what went on in the temple, all the furnishings in the temple. And uh, I look forward to, to sharing with, with you then. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps the different lessons that I've highlighted from this passage will apply in different ways to each of us. We pray that by your Spirit, you would speak to us and that you would apply your word in our hearts and lives. May our worship of you, Lord, be pure and simple, sincere and authentic. May our work for you be for you and you alone. We pray, Lord, that none of us would be disqualified from doing all that you've put in our hearts to do. And help us to be careful what we ask for. And guard the communion of the saints among us. Let there be unity in our church, Lord. And may we always look to you as our our leader, our guide, our teacher. Help us never to put our trust in people, but in you, Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.